0: Hi, thank you for joining us on If She Can Do It, So Can You. My name is Amanda Creasy and I am your host. On If She Can Do It, So Can You, we aim to air a new episode on the first of every month so that we can share with you women's wisdom, wit, and grit in an empowering and inspirational podcast. I'm glad that you're here to listen as I talk to women about their trials and their triumphs while they share their stories of challenges they've overcome barriers they've broken, stereotypes they have silenced, and dreams that they have achieved. My goal is that through each episode, you will be able to find your own strength, healing, and motivation through their success stories. Because if she can do it, so can you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, If She Can Do It, So Can You. Today, my guest is Valley Haggard. She has written in short and long form all her life. She's a big fan of the postcard, the six-word memoir, and drawers full of unfinished manuscripts. She has slept in tents, hostels, motels, couches, tool sheds, log cabins, bunk beds, and ship bowels for short periods of time, and the house she grew up in for much longer than that. She has lived in Virginia, New York, Italy, Colorado, Arkansas, and Alaska, holding jobs as a Waffle House waitress, dude ranch cabin girl, cruise ship stewardess, and hotel maid. She has written book reviews, author interviews, and first-person columns, judged fiction contests and fellowships, and sat on nonprofit writing boards. She's the recipient of a Richmond Magazine 2014 Teresa Black Prize, a 2015 Style Weekly Women in the Arts Award, and the winner of the 2018 James River Writers Emile Jenkins Award. The founder of Richmond Young Writers in 2009, Valley now leads creative nonfiction marathons, workshops, and retreats for adults. She's the founder of Life in 10 Minutes, the author of The Halfway House for Writers and Surrender Your Weapons, Writing to Heal, and the co-editor of Nine Lives, a Life in 10 Minutes anthology. She has a handsome husband, a brilliant son, an addictive personality, and a voracious appetite for all things word. Her memoir, There's No Accounting for the Strangeness of Things, will be published in December of this year. So thank you for joining us, Sally.
1: Thank you so much for asking me. I think your podcast is a brilliant
0: idea. Thank you so much. Well, this first question is probably a little strange, but it was prompted after I read your um, your bio. So you mentioned there's this litany of places that you have lived, I mean, ranging from motels to ship bowels, but then it says you lived in the house you grew up in for much longer than that. And that just made me wonder, do you still live in that house?
1: You know, I need to update that bio because I don't. We moved out uh, about two years ago, but but my husband and I lived there for 18 years together. Wow. And just in 2019, um, finally moved into a home that, um, that is new for both of us, rather than him moving into my childhood home. So I feel like of liberation.
0: There could be an entire interview just about the psychology of that.
1: <laughs> it's true. I've spent so much time writing about it as well. I'm sure. Absolutely. I'm sure it was hard for you to
0: leave, but also kind of a beautiful thing to start this new life at 18 years.
1: Yeah, honestly, it wasn't hard to leave at all. Oh, okay. I haven't looked back. I was so ready. <laughs> That's yes. good. Okay.
0: Well, now on to the questions that I had planned. Um, okay. So how and when did you discover your love of writing?
1: I discovered my love of writing really uh, by discovering my love of reading. I was a passionate reader as a child and um, my mom said when I was seven, I told her I wanted to grow up to be a famous reader. <laughs> and I <laughs> when I that. got a job as a book editor, I felt like I'd achieved my lifetime goal. Um, but reading and a passion for reading really kind of naturally, I, I think, dovetails with a love of writing because um, it's kind of a conversation back to, to the authors that you love in a way. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes the way that you can learn to communicate and to process the world through words, and so one just truly led to the other. So that was early elementary school, middle school.
0: So you wanted to be a professional reader. What are you reading right now?
1: That's a great question. I um I, I love the library. I've been getting like armloads of books from the library and um. Uh, the, the library, Co. Library, I went to just had a display of international writers, and they were encouraging you to find authors from all over the world. I took an armful of those, and the one that I'm reading now is called Baby, and I could not tell you the author's name. I apologize um, that I don't know it. I, I've just been, I'm in a reading season. I go through seasons of not reading, seasons of reading, and I'm going through them so fast. <laughs> Right now, um, I just finished another one called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by a Polish author, and she actually won the Pulitzer Prize last year for her book flight. I could go down a long list, but I'm, I'm just keeping them rolling because I'm, I'm in that, that mode.
0: Yeah, I like what you said about reading seasons and writing seasons. I have been trying to, well, reading Actually, the first time I ever saw you in a workshop, I think we talked about the Poisonwood Bible um, in different perspectives, and I'm finally getting around to reading it. Well, I started it in June, and I'm loving it. It's just taking me forever to get through because I'm in a writing season.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, yeah, that is a fabulous book. And um, at first, like maybe the first time I experienced the inability to read, it terrified me. Mm -hmm. But then it came back and i really realized that i kind of go through output and input. Yeah. so when i'm being really creative and kind of going through the birthing process of a mm-hmm. of a piece or a book or whatever i can't take so much in, right? and then and then i kind of finish that period and then i have to refill and refuel and um So I've just come to trust the natural seasons of that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Because I think as writers, we can kind of beat ourselves up. And as readers, too, if we're not doing enough of one thing or the other. I've talked to some writers, too, who have told me that they feel like if they read too much when they're trying to do a project, they feel like they take on the voice of the other writer and lose their own. Yeah, yeah,
1: true.
2: Well, What do you love about writing?
1: Gosh, um, I guess so many things. I feel like I'm a better writer than talker. (laughs) Like in the heat of the moment, I just feel like I get really tongue-tied. I always think of what I should have said later. Um, My, you know, too many thoughts are coming at once, so it doesn't come out the way in which I wish that it would. It does Mm. feel sometimes like talking cannot contain the full expression um, that I would like to. To convey. So, writing just gives me so much more of an opportunity to figure out what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. It helps me process what I'm living. And my life is right when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I go too long without writing, kind of going that long without showering for Mm -hmm. me, I start to feel like there's a buildup of clutter and junk and dirt and grime. And I I kind of have to flush it out by writing regularly. I love writing as a form of escape, mm-hmm. as a form of um, really therapy, yeah. It's expression. Um, there are just so many reasons to write and, and that I love writing.
0: Yeah. I'm going to latch on to what you just said about therapy, because actually you, you have Life in 10 Minutes, which I want to talk about. And part of a facet of that is the Facebook group. And, um, I recently saw a post that you wrote probably just a day or two ago about writing as therapy and and playing a role in the healing process. And I've taken several workshops with you. It's been a while with COVID, but I've loved all of them. And they always started with an entry that was right now I am, and then we kind of completed the sentence. So, um, from both a creative and a therapeutic angle, why do you like to start a lot of your classes with that prompt?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, because I feel like it helps us arrive in the present moment. But I think when we sit down to the page, we're always full of something. We're full of what we were doing the minute before, the hour before, the day before. And it's kind of a way of cleaning, wiping the slate clean, getting mm-hmm. all of the kind of emotional static, uh, Giving it somewhere, kind of downloading all of that, giving it somewhere to rest, so that we're able to kind of go into the next level, a deeper level. And so each um, time we write in the class, it's kind of a progression of dipping down deeper. Therapeutically, I think, um, like it's very much like the the bathing, the showering analogy. It's a way of kind of just keeping current with life, with what's happening. And if if there's too much buildup, it starts to kind of Um, stagnate and solidify. And I get more like rigid and weird.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So talking about life in 10 minutes, can you talk a little bit about what the life in 10 minutes method is and how you developed it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think how I developed it really relates to why um, I had been doing journalism for a number of years. And um, as much as I, was appreciative of being able to write articles and and to be in that position it kind of made me start to hate writing mm-hmm. because everything was deadline-based perfection-based um and I'd write a sentence and then cross it out and rewrite it and like felt like banging my head into the wall and um <laughs> it felt like I was always taking it felt like homework in a way mm-hmm. that that was never done And so it really was interfering with my love of writing, kind of making me not want to write Mm. for myself. And at some point, I was like, this is tragic. I can't lose my love of writing. I have to find a way to do it that is joyful. Like, I need to reclaim the joy, reclaim um, the love. And so I had also been working with a mentor who was old school, old school, like tough love. And she would be come down really hard on me. Um, one of the stories she read of mine, she's like, Valley, this is not even a first draft. Oh, wow. And It was like crushing. And I realized that I couldn't operate with that kind of mentality anymore. I'd taken a lot of um, critique workshops and so forth in college and after. And that the critique model just Was too brittle and harsh, and that I don't respond well. Mm -hmm. It makes me want to quit Mm -hmm. rather than to keep trying harder and to do better. So I kind of thought of what kind of format would I love? What would be nurturing for me? And it was really the idea of writing in community, not having homework. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You write right there, you share, and it's just a supportive atmosphere rather than a critique based atmosphere. So that the idea of everyone just listening, getting some very gentle and strength-based feedback, moving on to the next reader, and everyone listening to them. Um, And I have found it to be a method from the very first night I taught that class that has never changed because Mm -hmm. it works. I've just kept it with minor, minor tweaks. Mm -hmm. But I've basically kept that method because it's so freeing.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I feel like you've been doing this for a while. I feel like you were on the forefront of the mindfulness movement before it was really a movement, because that's what these right now I am entries are. They're coming to terms with your present issues, concerns, emotions, thoughts, so that you can sit with them and move on.
1: Well, that's generous, Amanda. I think they're, uh, I really come from a, I have learned from other amazing writers and writing teachers. I'm certainly not. Um, like a pioneer of free writing, <laughs> <laughs> or of um, arriving in the present moment. It's just I kind of collected all the bits and pieces from different methods, some I've kind of created, but it's really an amalgamation of what I've seen, and what I've most wanted to put together into mm-hmm. kind of the same pot. Yeah.
0: But I mean, aren't we all just amalgamations of the best of what we've seen? Like that's the goal, right? To learn. I reckon
1: that's true.
0: Yeah. So I think I, the first time I saw you speak, it was at a James River writers conference. You were teaching a master's class. Um, and I remember like the minute you started talking, I was like, I need to, I need to like work with this woman again. Like, and then I immediately started thinking, and I have this friend who would love her, and I have this friend. And I <laughs> walked out of that workshop, and I just started texting friends like, have you heard of Valley Haggard? She does these workshops. I'm going to take one. You all need to take one with me. And because it is, like you said, the word nurturing is perfect. And um, I hope you saw the email I sent you giving you a heads up that I was going to maybe ask I you. did. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't, we might want to take this opportunity if you have a copy of your Halfway House for Writers handy. Sure do. There's a favorite page or chapter that kind of speaks to that um, uh, idea of writing as being nurtured and not critiqued.
1: Yeah, that's a a great point. Um, Yeah, the Halfway House for Writers. uh, I forgot that's where I initially met you, Amanda. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, at the James River Writers Masterclass. And I actually wrote the Halfway House for Writers as a handout for that class. really? it just kind of accidentally turned into a little book. It it
0: accidentally became a
2: book. (laughs) Funny how that happens.
1: (laughs) That's really how I felt about it. Um, Well, I actually have chosen a chapter, and it was written in the same 10-minute format we do in class, called Extracting Splinter. Okay. Um, And so I'm going to read that. Uh, I, I do believe it relates to the idea of being nurtured as many of these pieces do in one way or another, but I'm um, extracting splinters. I think of writing practice as a process of extracting splinters. Whether you extract the biggest splinter or the smallest first doesn't matter. You may choose the shard piercing your foot that cripples you or the tiny thorn in your side, but keep going. Keep extracting splinters one at a time. I have written slowly, bit by bit, over time, a series of essays and stories that have exposed me layer by layer, each line, each piece revealing a little bit more. And with each revelation, each confession, I have accepted myself more fully. As I've uncovered my deepest flaws, I've also uncovered strength hidden beneath the festering splinters. Each extracted splinter reveals tender pink flesh eager to heal. For many years, I had a first-person column in a monthly women's magazine and my own blog as vehicles for this process. I wrote about myself as a recovering alcoholic and addict, as a teenage bisexual, my brush with divorce and bankruptcy, getting sued by two credit card companies, my love affair with food, my online affair, posing naked, being a secret smoker, being raised on food stamps and welfare. Moving 15 times with my dad when I was growing up, and that time I let my health get overrun by cockroaches. There is still more to go, but each piece I release into the world is one less piece of baggage I have to carry alone. Whether many people read it, or a few, or one, or none, I am relieved of the burden of secrecy and shame. Now, each time I sit down to write, I start with an internal mental, emotional Spiritual and physical body scan, seeking out sore spots that left to fester will become infected. Wherever there is a splinter still lodged, age old or brand new, I extract it by naming it, by writing it out until it has lost some of its sting, some of its power. Only then can I move on. The pen is the tweezers, the lance, and the sword. It is the surgeon's knife with the power to cut and ultimately to heal.
0: You know, I love everything you've ever written <laughs> that I've ever read, of course. And this is no exception. I'm actually really, really glad you chose this particular piece for a number of reasons. But one of them is that you list kind of all these challenges that you have faced, that you have used writing as a as a way to heal from or as a way to bring to the surface. Um of course, this podcast is geared partially towards people who might be experiencing or who have experienced some of those same struggles or similar struggles. So that was the perfect excerpt. I'm really grateful you shared that one.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: There's like so many places I could go after that. As you were reading, I'm like, oh, I could ask that question next or this question would be perfect. Um, But I'm going to move to what was ultimately I thought going to be my last question, because I think your excerpt's a good jumping off point. So you kind of, you talked about these struggles that you've had in a list, and I had a list in this question, which is a list of the roles that I kind of perceive you in. So, you know, oh. you're you're a wife, you're a mother, you're an entrepreneur, you're a writer, you're a businesswoman, you're a friend, and I really see you as like a pillar of the local literary community in the Richmond area. Um, and you never play like it's easy or well-balanced or even successful. And yet here you are, you're just so honest about it um, and open and sort of raw. So how do you juggle all these things? And even though you never act like it's easy, like you make it look easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My answer is badly. Well, <laughs> so, um, I think, you know, being honest and really being um, transparent and exposing what's happening is really easier for me than faking it Mm
2: -hmm. i've
1: never been able to fake it i don't have a poker face Mm -hmm. i um i wear everything kind of on my face on my sleeve on the exterior so it's like that's it's really the easier way for me to go Mm -hmm. um trying to pretend everything's fine when it isn't uh just feels like it's i'm gonna crack apart right and like end up dead on the floor (laughs) um I just don't do that well. Mm -hmm. Uh, For better or worse, I am a terrible liar. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I guess the question about handling or juggling all these things, um, I don't even know. When you were reading my bio, I was like, gosh, that's a lot of stuff. But I think the thing is, is it over a long period of time, I mean, what you're reading about is 25 years worth of life so it's not like it all just happened at once or like I just decided that I was going to teach writing classes one day or write a book it just has been such an organic and what has felt like a very slow process most of the time while it's happening it's so easy to compare where we're at to someone else's bio where it's all contained in a couple paragraphs Yeah. yeah um and and a lot of it isn't current anymore. Like, I'm not still on a board. I'm not right. still writing for many magazines. Um, I'm My kid is much older. All these things were so much harder when he was little. I don't, you know? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it, you don't see the whole picture when you hear all the tags behind someone's name.
2: Right. Well, and you don't see the struggle. You see the success, but the struggles right. between the lines. <laughs>
1: Yes, yes.
0: Well, your bio does talk about all these really like unique sort of singular jobs that you've had in all these different places. How have some of these experiences played a role in your writing and sort of the way you perceive the world?
1: Yeah, well, it's easy to get a really varied and bizarre um, resume if you major in creative writing or English. (laughs) because. You know, most of those things have to do with waitressing and service work and, um, you know, just any kind of job I could scrape together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, however, I do feel like I was kind of catapulted out into the world. Um, after my last year of college, I um, it was at a small liberal art school in New York, and i was starting to just feel really stifled and suffocated by like the academic atmosphere, the atmosphere of um, intellectualism. I wanted to see how people really lived. I wanted to live, I wanted to see people use their hands to work in the world. Like the, the um, at least the, a lot of the crowd I got kind of drawn into, was there was this real, it started to feel like an arrogant, um, egocentric claustrophobia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I just wanted to get out of it. So I, you know, did the obvious thing, which is to go be a cabin girl at a dude ranch in Colorado.
2: Very (laughs) obvious.
1: (laughs) I wanted to get as far away from like the New York intellectual world as I could at that Mm -hmm. point. And I did.
0: So you did, and then you did a litany of other really amazing things. And so, you know, you said earlier that Once you became a book editor, which I'm guessing was after some of these other adventures, you felt like you'd made it because that was a professional reader. Um, Right. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about your experience working full-time for someone else versus being self-employed?
1: I mean, I'll try to, although when I look back, I'm like, did I ever work an actual full-time job? (laughs) Was that how many of the yeah, so many of the things I did were pieced together, mm-hmm. like a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, I, I could kind of say, I mean, I've done freelance, I've done contract work, I've done, I mean, I guess the, the closest thing to a full-time job I've had really was being a stewardess on a cruise ship mm-hmm. and being a an avid girl and um, on, on the ranch because you never left. I mean, you lived there, so work was life, life was work. Mm-hmm. But I didn't leave the, work, the that those experiences and get a corporate job or get something that was nine to five and had mm-hmm. an actual salary and benefit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I just, I think that that I can attribute to having two self-employed parents. Okay. Yeah. And so I never had the model of working for someone else for security. Mm-hmm. I had the model of... Uh, like doing your own thing is more important than being secure or paying the electric bill Mm -hmm. um, every month and that kind of thing.
0: Well, and I think that a lot of people, you know, people like the stability and the security and the benefits of the nine to five and the salary. And so a lot of people who maybe sense that they would be happier in other positions face fears about following those dreams because they know they risk losing the salary, the security, the stability. Um, You love writing and you've managed to build a career out of it for yourself. How, how, I mean, what, how
1: does this happen? (laughs) It happens out of kind of, um, gosh, so many things, desperation. (laughs) Um, I just, okay. I did come to what I considered a crossroads in 2008 where I had been um, working behind the desk at Style Weekly part-time and was um, also freelancing there. And that's how we had our insurance because my husband had just, you know, just a few months before the crash in 2008, quit his job and become self-employed. So I was the one with health insurance. And then I got laid off. Mm. And it was like, holy hell. Yeah, Neither yeah. of us have health insurance. Neither of us have a salary. We have like a, whole, <laughs> a four-year-old. Oh and. Um, I was looking into temp agencies, et cetera, to see if I could get some part-time work. And I got a call, and they wanted me to interview with a local credit card agency to do copywriting work full-time with benefits. And I was really tortured about this phone call. And I ended up saying no. I don't want to do that interview. And I never, t- I didn't tell my husband for months because I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how, how
2: stupid I was.
1: <laughs> that I'm keeping us in this position when right. I have an opportunity. I had friends be like, you were insane. Mm-hmm. Go get a job like at McDonald's or whatever. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it, Amanda. And it wasn't quickly, but little by little by little, I picked up other things, started putting them together. And then very slowly, those things built into a life and Mm -hmm. into a career. Um, I think it's easy for me to say, I'm not going to do a corporate job because I've never had one. So I don't have that to give up. (laughs) I don't have that kind of security to lose. I mean, there was a lot of rice and beans but we never missed a meal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember feeling like I couldn't pay for sunscreen. Oh, wow. It was going to be a sacrifice to buy sunscreen. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't easy, but there was this stubborn, stubborn ass part of me that just could not imagine doing it any mm-hmm. other way.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, and I mean, of course, now it's culminated in two going on three books plus the anthology so it's become quite a successful career that's helped a lot of people and your press has launched some writing careers talk about your path to actually writing books and to starting your press
1: oh well <laughs> I, I did mention um that the halfway house writers which turned out to be my first book was supposed to be a handout they mm-hmm. call it the handout that got seriously out of hand. Um, <laughs> so I asked a friend, we were doing this barter for him to kind of make it into like a brochure, these notes I started to make for that master class. And the notes kept getting longer and longer and longer. And then when he formatted it, it wasn't a handout. It was like a small book. And when they arrived in the mail, I actually wept. Wow. Not out of joy, out of just because I was like, I did not mean to self-publish my first book. Aww. Like, I felt like I got tricked into it by the universe or something. And it has been the most beautiful blessing. One of the most beautiful blessings of my life that that, that happened in this accidental way, because I really um, kind of suffered this brutal death of expectations of what I was going to be. Mm-hmm. And of what it meant to be a writer, and of getting that big agent, and getting that big publishing house, and becoming ranked on the New York Times bestseller list in some way or another. And at some point, like I had sent my memoir, or what became the half, what became Surrender Your Weapons, I sent it out, and I got a couple rejections. Like I said, I do not handle criticism well. Some people do. Some people thrive on it, or they just turn it into like. I'm going to send out 8,000 queries, and they don't take it personally. But I just am not made of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So when it was not being able to get Surrender Your Weapons published that I decided to start my own press because I was like, this book can be in the world whether someone else chooses it or not.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't have to get permission from an outside source to have my book born into Mm -hmm. this world Mm -hmm. um and so and it also it just seemed like the organic natural step because i've been working with writers in my classes for so long that had such beautiful amazing powerful work and these were not people who were going to take the time energy maybe they're built like me they're not going to go after um these big names and all the work that it takes in the kind of dog-eat-dog world of publishing, but that I could give them a voice. I could do the same thing for them that I wanted to do for myself. And so with the help of some other truly wonderful, really talented, hardworking people, and we've pulled this small press together. It is a small press, (laughs) very small, but the the idea of having um, books in the world, one way or the not- another <clears throat> is so deeply, deeply satisfying. Yeah. And to me, in the end, it's kind of like when I was pregnant, I really wanted to have a natural birth, but I couldn't. I had a C section and I was grieving that. And then I was like, you know what? I got a baby. <laughs> and whether I had adopted in vitro, C section, natural birth, whatever, in the end, you get a baby, and what does it? does it really matter how it got here, how it got into your, you know, to become a baby. So that's really how I felt about it. I love that
0: reframing of the concept that the the end result, the goal was met regardless of the method that you had to take or the journey that you had to go on. Um, so along those lines, you have been widely published in a lot of different publications and a lot of different genres. And I think a lot of writers feel this really, um, sort of elated feeling of validation when we get published. And then there is this sense of like dejection or inadequacy when we are rejected. So are writers only good if they're published or what, what other metrics can we use to measure literary value?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and that's the death, the miserable, brutal death I'm talking about. It all kind of went together. Like I really had believed, and I think it's really Pounded into you in these kind of academic settings, um, or at least the kind of like highbrow literary institutions that I wanted to be a part of, Mm -hmm. um, that there's only one way of being affirmed as a writer. And it's this kind of certain level of publishing um, through an editor, an agent, and a big publishing house. And when that died for me, it died in a big and spectacular way. And I'd never go back to thinking. Um, that I, I I never go back. The idea that you have to be published to be a good writer to find satisfaction or joy from writing, I think, is we've been sold it. It's a lie. Just like I receive a tremendous amount of benefit from exercising, but I don't want to be an Olympic athlete. I don't have to win a race to be. Um, or a contest of any kind to get a tremendous benefit and feel good about moving my body in any way that I choose to. In the very same way, we can um, derive great pleasure, great satisfaction with the writing process itself. And with maybe if we choose to share it with one other person, or a small community, um, or self-published for our family and friends, I think the measure of joy you get by telling the truth and honestly writing is really far surpasses the more, um, what I see as kind of this external validation by someone else out there.
0: I, um, along the lines of you saying that your sort of your, your dream of being traditionally published and becoming a bestseller and all that died in a big way, you, your other book, Surrender Your Weapons, Writing to Heal, clearly Writing to Heal it was a very different game than writing to get published. Um, Although writing that you do to heal could potentially end up published. The goal is different. Do you have an expert expert? Do you have an expert you'd like to share from surrender your weapons?
1: Sure. sure. I do. Um, And this one is called the fuel of feeling. I like that. We do not have to arrive at writing practice in the perfect mood or even in a good mood. We can come to the page with every and any feeling we have. We can show up angry, grieving, jealous, sad, confused, exhausted. We don't have to apologize for our feelings or explain them away. We can use them as fuel to drive our narrative forward, each feeling lending itself to a different kind of expression. I believe that when we write tired, we are often more vulnerable and have less energy to put up our usual filmy walls. Resistance. Anger can add force to our words while sorrow might soften them. Each emotion brings a different aspect of our lives and ourselves to the page. I have shown up to my notebook red hot with fury and doubled over in grief. I have entered the page confused, uncertain, unsure. Almost without fail, I emerged from my writing practice feeling different than when I entered it. The physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual act of writing transmits and transform emotions. The stories we write become carriers of these feelings that suffused into our words can be felt by the reader. We know when we read something fueled by emotion that was born in the heart or the body, as opposed to a wholly clinical academic piece pride from the head. Our bodies respond when we read words with the fuel of feeling. We don't have to turn away from the page because we aren't in the right mood. Every mood we have has something different to say, another piece to add to our story.
0: I love that. And you have, so we have the Life in 10 Minutes workshops, but you also have some other workshops and some of them are geared towards writing to heal. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of these nonfiction marathons and workshops and retreats that, that you lead?
1: Yeah, Sure. Actually, what has happened over time is it's all the same thing. (laughs) I don't distinguish anymore between, I used to have Store Under Your Weapons workshops, the small talk Mm workshops, Life in the First Person, um, Life in 10 Minutes, and Marathons and stuff. And really, it's just, I've gotten rid of all the bells and whistles, anything different, because at its most simple core, this writing process works. And it really gets to, I think the deepest material that we need to write about, and I don't think it needs a garnish. And so it's really all the same. Um, We do, within each class, there's such a huge variety of voices, of material. Um, We might be writing to heal. We might be writing to just get something out, to process, to tell a story. But it's, it's not divided up anymore. It's all in the same big kind of pot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see why that would work because the ones I went to were always sort of labeled the life in 10. And it was so, I loved your workshops. Like, I hope I get an opportunity to take another one again because it's probably been four years maybe since I was able to. But I was a participant for maybe like three years. And I still, all these years later, I still think about specific um fellow participants in the class and their specific pieces that they've written that I still will go back to and even talk to other people about like oh I was in this wow. workshop one time and this woman wrote this thing and this is what it was about and I still sometimes will get emotional about things that they wrote or that I wrote um and one thing we've just sort of touched on a little bit is what the method is with the 10 minutes so what's magical about this this 10
1: yeah so 10 minutes was a completely arbitrary number picked out of just kind of out of the sky. It's what fit into a a two-hour workshop that we could write three times for 10 minutes. So it wasn't nothing magical about that number, but it has kind of become magical in its own way over time because it is just mind-blowing what can be written in 10 minutes
2: Mm -hmm.
1: on how much we can get down and out onto the page. I think we might have the perception that, in order to write anything good or powerful or strong, we have to have a weekend away mm-hmm. or at least a day away, or spend four hours at our computer in the morning. But what has this process has shown is that we can kind of with the I almost see it like a pressure cooker, we turn the heat up to high when we have the timer on, and we can do a tremendous amount in ten minutes. and I see them each 10-minute piece is like a building block or a square of a quilt that um, eventually can, they can be moved around, they can be shuffled, put in different orders. But eventually we get this big, beautiful blanket or this really strong foundation for you know, the structure that we're building. Um, and the idea is to not judge it, to not edit it, to not, um, to not filter out things that we don't think we should write and to really let our what I see as our subconscious take over because we might not know what we're going to write a stop giving prompt because I don't know what someone else needs to write mm-hmm. other than that first right now I am at the beginning I don't know what someone else needs to write. they might not know in you know intellectually but as you keep going and you kind of let the process move through you I think the subconscious, the unconscious, has a plan, has a direction, knows what needs to come up. So really, we're trying to get out of our own way and let kind of that deeper knowing within ourselves take over.
0: I find that that is so true about writing. And I think for me, that's one of my favorite things about writing is watching it unfold and having almost this out of self experience. Um, I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know I even understood this thing or had this thought. And Sometimes when I've written things and like, you've, you know, you've commented on it in a workshop or I've been working with people on my manuscript and they'll notice things. And I mean, I've had experience to the point where I'll be in a workshop and they'll, you know, they're talking about the divorce scene and I'm literally going, I wrote a divorce scene. (laughs) That's in my book. What page is that on? And I mean, there's like eight pages of it. There it is. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I kind of remember writing this. (laughs) Yeah sort of this
1: experience right right I think that there's something really um bigger than ourselves that Mm -hmm. that can come you know that it's like our big self versus our small self when we let that happen
0: right yeah Yeah, I I like to talk to my students about that because they'll say, Miss Creasy, how do you know that Fitzgerald really wanted yellow to symbolize this? And how do you know? And I'm like, well, sometimes, you know, because they tell you. Um, And other times it doesn't matter if they planned that it came out and it reveals itself as a motif or a theme or a symbol. And that is what unfolded.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So did you use the life in 10 method to write? There's no accounting for the strangeness of things
1: sure did. Yeah, I did. Um, and I've been wanting to do this book probably since I started. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably since I started the writing process, it's taken a very long time. I've been doing this for 10 or 11 years and have amassed, I mean, thousands of pages of writing. Um, and a lot of it is just, well... A lot of it is what I refer to as uh, bridge pieces, Mm -hmm. pieces that you have to write to take you from where you are to the next place. They're not necessarily going to go anywhere themselves. But if you don't write them, you can't move on. So probably 90% of the writing in those notebooks, is they're probably bridge pieces or um, I don't know. I I wrote this, I put together this manuscript from pages from my Life in 10 Minutes classes from over the last 10 years, and came up with a manuscript that was 170,000 words long.
2: Wow. Wow.
1: And it was a long process getting that together, like, you know, maybe years. And then one day, I could just see everything that was extra that took away from the true story i was trying to tell so i started editing and within one day i went from 170,000 words to 70,000 words
0: wow talk about 100,000 words out wow and
1: yeah. that's
0: the hardest but sometimes that can be the hardest part of writing i think is knowing what doesn't need to be there
1: it's so true and it took a long time for me to let go mm-hmm. of that extra 100,000 words yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you let go yeah. of them for this, but that's not to say they won't fit somewhere sometime.
1: And it, you know, I really believe that so speaks to my belief that nothing we do is wasted. Mm-hmm. And it might not turn into something for public consumption or out there, but it served a purpose in getting us to where we are. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Was know, a, um, oh, go ahead, please.
1: Oh, it's just. I, it used to be heartbreaking to me to think of all the work I had that would never be published or make it out there.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the only way I could reconcile that was seeing it all as necessary um, to move me forward. Mm-hmm. And and I truly believe that that is the case.
0: I think that's very valuable advice for any writer, whether it's a college student just trying to turn out a paper or some, you know, an author working on a manuscript they want published or anything, because I, you can't write your second draft, right? Until you've written the first draft, even if it's crap. And um, my students really struggle with that. They think they've written the paper, it's done. I'm like, no, not everything you write is worth my time. (laughs) not everything you write was worth me grading it guys like you need to revise this a little bit um (laughs) I was at a conference once where the author had had they had written multiple manuscripts and her first manuscript could not I mean it never found a publishing home but her second one did and she was still like Mm -hmm. so crushed about this first one because it was her baby and I don't know if it was her agent or her editor but someone said to her you had to write that one to get the second one out there like it wasn't sure. wasted. So what if nobody wants it? You couldn't write the second one if you didn't write the first one. You had to get that That's out so first. True.
2: Yep yep exactly.
0: There's no accounting for strangeness is a memoir. How did or the strangeness of things rather. How did you come up with the title? Um,
1: the title comes from uh Story that my dad always used to tell me from the time when he worked at a a mental institution for the criminally insane when he was a social worker um, in his 20s and so he he would, my dad had the weirdest bedtime stories ever (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but this one was, he was doing his rounds and he went into one of his patient's rooms and Mr. Johnson was laying in the bathtub, in state, like in me, as if he state? were in a coffin. Oh, 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 in state. Oh, so gosh. He, was, he had his he had his hands crossed over his chest and a rose. Somehow he had a rose, like clasped between his hands. Hmm. And my father said, "Mr. Johnson, are you okay?" And Mr. Johnson sat up in the bathtub and said, "There's no accounting for the strangeness of things." Well, he
2: wasn't wrong.
1: So that was just one of those lines that was kind of infused into my life. And um, since this book, really, my dad is such a major part of it. That's such a huge uh, kind of thread throughout this book. I just felt like that title, um, that line related to so many aspects of my life and this writing.
0: Do you have an excerpt from the upcoming memoir that you wanted to I use as sure one? Do. Thank <laughs>
1: you. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so this piece is called "Longing." When I'm four, my dad dreams that I'm from Atlantis, and he's so shocked he falls backwards out of his chair. I dream of lions in my front yard, and I'm afraid to go outside for months. To me, both of these dreams are true. I'm from another world, and there's beauty and danger everywhere. I feel like a shooting star in my dad's solar system more than a planet or a daughter, a special guest star more than a child with needs and fears and desires. But I never doubt his love for me, not even when loving him feels more like longing. Sometimes I sleep in a sleeping bag next to his bed, sometimes in a loft he's built in one of the bigger rooms we've lived in, Sometimes I have a room of my own. One day after school in the fourth grade, my dad picked me up and said, surprise, we moved. Mm -hmm. And he leads me down the hall past our old apartment on Gray Street to a new apartment in the same building further down. My dad moves every year, but no matter where we go, he puts me to sleep with Uncle Wiggly stories and in the morning wakes me up with the Pachelbel Cannon on the record player and a hot mug of children's coffee, warm milk, honey, and a tablespoon of rich boulders. Sometimes I miss the apartments or townhouses or rentals we leave behind, but in memory, they're just a blur of rooftops and fences and walls and shafts of light and shadow falling through windows onto the floor.
0: Wow, that was beautiful for so many different reasons. I mean, the the imagery was gorgeous, but I also love the character that you created in your dad. And you kind of weave in this, you know, this subtlety that there were some flaws there and there was some instability, but there were so many constants that were so beautiful, no matter where you were with him.
2: True.
0: Yeah, that was gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It definitely makes me want to read all of the other pages that are in there.
1: Oh, thank you so much. The other 70,000 words. <laughs> yes,
0: that are still remaining. I wouldn't have minded of reading the other 100,000 words. Either, oh,
1: but. I think you would have.
0: I <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Since they're not in there, I'll just have to wait till they find their way somewhere else. Um, We haven't really talked about this yet, other than in your bio, but you founded Richmond Young Writers. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that group and what its mission sure. is?
1: It yes, my pleasure. And it's really important for me to say that a huge, I mean, a massive part of Rich and Writers and what it is today is because of um, Bird Cott, who was my partner about two years into the formation. of what I had done was very small. Once we worked together, it really became a completely different um, organization, a completely different animal. And now she's running it as the executive director. She turned it into a nonprofit. She's completely taken the reins. Um, she's doing really wonderful things, both in person and online, for um, all kinds of young writers in the community. And so I am I feel so blessed. Um, I probably pulled away oh, I'm, I'm going to say 2017, somewhere around there. And Bird has just done a beautiful job um, maintaining and, and really growing the organization. Um, Retaining Writers was really, well, it was when I was on the board of the James River Writers and the current um, chair, Virginia Pye, kept asking me if I knew of any summer camps for kids because she wanted her son to take one. And I kept saying, no, I don't know of any summer camps for kids in this area. And then finally, it dawned on me, I'll teach a summer camp for kids. And we were literally going to do it in her attic um, with a couple of- I kind of of, love that. It's so campy. (laughs) Yeah, we are going to do it in the attic with some of um, her son's friends. And then one day I was already teaching kids in a couple of different, through different organizations like BizArt and- um, the virginia museum etc and art 180 but i had the brainstorm of asking word ta- test at top three books if um i could perhaps work out of the upstairs gallery room in his bookstore and do my camp there and he was like yeah absolutely <laughs> so instead of being in the attic we were in a bookstore and um it just came together like I really had no clue what I was doing. A friend helped me make a website. Somebody taught me how to use PayPal and like put forms on the website. But because I'd been in school settings and had worked for style, I had a lot of wonderful connections with both families and writers. Mm. So I was able to pull together some camps that were truly fantastic, a dream come true. Um, And all the credit truly is due to my own experiences as a teenager when I went to the UVA Young Writers Workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, for a couple of summers, I was a student here. For a couple of summers, I was a counselor. And Margot Figgins was the originator of the UVA and Writers Workshop. And it was absolutely magical and life-changing. The kind of place where they treated you like a writer mm-hmm. with complete respect rather than like a little kid with a hobby. Right. Right. And it was like the kids who are passionate about writing who felt like weirdos at their school were able to come together and we formed the most like beautiful tribes. I have never cried as hard as on the days that camp ended, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that experience to kind of base my original writers around, at least Energetically and the feeling of it, and it was mm. wonderful. We were in Carytown. Um, Todd, his last name just left me, but Todd, who who was at the Bird Theater forever, let us do readings on Friday afternoons oh, in the Bird Theater.
2: Yeah, um,
1: cool. we would go. Yeah, we'd go people watching at the coffee shop. We'd go walk around Carytown and do like um silent scavenger hunts for details and plot and character. And it was just fantastic. I mean, it was so kind of organically thrown together that I didn't have tables or chairs and put on Facebook. Does anybody have some (laughs) tables I can borrow?
0: That's fine. Dogs are great. Okay,
1: (laughs) (laughs) They are, they truly are. (laughs) Does anybody have some tables I can borrow? And somebody was like, yeah, you can borrow our tables." Um, so it started out really like that. We moved twice, and now um, our landing place, or where Bird is still operating out of, is on Cary Street, just one block across the boulevard from Carytown.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we have, uh, she now has her own space, and it's really beautiful. And she had a table made, specially made for it. So wow. it wasn't like somebody's borrowed folding table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a
0: long way.
1: Yeah, that was in 2009. So, like, what's that make it?
2: 12 years.
1: Can't add. Over a decade. (laughs) I know it's been a long time.
0: Yeah, that's, but I'm sure it's really gratifying for you to see that, like, this brainchild just be flourishing.
1: I'm so pleased. I mean, I'm so pleased that we can offer a similar experience. I mean, UVA was a sleepaway camp, but at least kind of the feeling of being really honored. Mm -hmm. and respected as a writer to to kids locally. And now that it's online, people can sign up from anywhere.
0: Yeah, I love that. I I always tell my students about it uh, and encourage (laughs) them to investigate it. Um, I'm going to take a leap away from the literary for just a second because, well, sort of, it's not too far of a leap because you wrote about this recently, but um, our listeners, unless they happen to be on YouTube, can't see your funky new haircut <laughs> um but valley used to have this very full head of very long hair in fact the whole time i knew you um you had this like voluptuous hair and you recently cut it like sort of in like a bob and now it's cut it's like shaven but there's like a fun little i don't know is there
1: a word for that good question <laughs> i don't know we need to come a little with wave a, a little uh, yeah yeah
0: know. this is a longer section that's like its own fun color and it's very like edgy looking and i want to talk about because we just very briefly on social media went back and forth about this a little bit because i have like hair halfway down my back now but at one point i had a pixie cut um and it's very different experience it uh, is. probably a singularly well maybe not now with covid haircuts and stuff men are, I think testing different things too but it's an interesting experience to cut your hair short when you've never done it before
1: it's true
0: do you want to talk about that
1: at all yeah yeah i've put so much thought into hair recently and i was actually texting a friend why is it such a big deal my hair and she said ask samson and delilah (laughs) yeah why it's such a big deal
2: it wasn't
1: it is um So I actually have cut my own hair before, and they were both at really maybe tumultuous times once when I was in Italy and kind of out of control and living in my alcoholism. And I cut my hair off very short at that time. And then after um, years later, after a series of miscarriages, when I was in deep grief, Mm -hmm. um, I went to a a salon. I think it was the hair cuttery and just cut it all off. Like, I want it gone. But that was many years ago, and you're right, I did have a tremendous amount of very long, very curly hair for a very long time, and I just started to feel this need to cut it that I couldn't really explain Mm -hmm. at the time, and I went in to get a cut, and it really was more of a trim, and I just was so dissatisfied. It didn't change me enough. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel Mm -hmm. significant. So I just started this process of cutting it shorter and shorter and shorter. And I felt, I guess, a little more freedom. Each time I cut more, it was like, you know, my dad died last year and kind of reaching that anniversary, one year anniversary of his death. um, I've been changed. I mean, it's like a a really transformational process to lose a parent. And it was kind of like, a need to release a lot of built up psychic energy
2: Mm -hmm. is how
1: I would explain it now. I also think, man, there's just no denying that letting go of hair is a real transformation of femininity. Yeah. How you're perceived as a woman. Mm -hmm. And so I've had so many mixed feelings about this. Um, And in some ways it's incredibly liberating. Well, let me tell you the savings on shampoo and conditioner. Yeah. And time. (laughs) And time all of that mm-hmm. um there's also just less of kind of the nice pretty girl quote unquote mm-hmm. uh and I feel like I have to present more as something um that can't rely on like this currency of femininity and I have really mixed feelings about it, honestly. But yeah. I think it's a great experiment for me, and I'm, um, I'm I'm embracing this experience of feeling kind of butch, yeah, <laughs> more uh, androgynous. Um, it's less of you know my not being known for this like kind of big mane and ironically both my husband and son have the longest hair (laughs) they've ever had it's like ultra 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 long Mm -hmm. kind of switched
0: (laughs) yeah that is kind of an interesting thing I know when I I had had my hair like up to my chin before and like a cute little bob and then I'd had it long and those were the two extremes and then maybe six years ago I kind of went through a similar experience to you I got it cut in the bob again and I was like no it's not short enough And then I got it cut into like this kind of funky, edgy, little, really short bob. And then I was like, "Mm -mm." Uh and then I practically had it shaved like yours, except for I had a little bit. Well, when I started your workshops, I had that haircut. Oh, Um, yeah. I don't know if you remember that. And I really liked it. But like you, it was like, I felt simultaneously empowered, but also like, I better wear makeup or I'm going to look like a guy, especially because, I mean, listeners wouldn't know this, but I'm over six feet tall. Um, and I have a very like waif like build, but sometimes being tall and having the ultra short hair made me more self conscious, largely yeah. because so much of our identity is tied up in what we feel like we look like.
1: Right. It's so true. So true. Yeah. It's definitely given me a lot, given me a lot to write about mm-hmm. for
2: the last couple of weeks. Yeah.
0: yeah I'm sure. Well, yeah. I think it's, well, I shouldn't even say I think it's cute because we're here, we're here sort of downplaying the idea that that matters but it
1: is cute (laughs) but it does it still does i can't lie i can't pretend it doesn't matter yeah i (laughs) I mean i'm working on letting go of it but you know it's
0: it still does i mean i i wore a little bit of makeup every day when my hair was short because if i didn't i just felt too masculine now that my hair is long again Valley, i haven't worn makeup since the pandemic started wow because even when i feel like oh i look i don't love the way i look today i'm like Whatever, I still look like a girl. I have long hair, so like whatever. Right, Um, it's so you rely on your hair so much. It's really fascinating. It really really is fascinating. fascinating. Yeah. Um, Well, do you have any parting advice you want to leave for writers, or just in general? I know that's a super broad question.
1: (laughs) It's a broad question, but I think the most life changing thing for me as a writer and human being is the process of. Just being gentle with myself, not beating myself up all the time, not berating, abusing myself or my writing. And I had this massive revelation a couple of years ago that the way I feel about myself is an equivalent of how I feel about my writing, and vice versa. Like if I hate my writing, I'm hating myself. Mm-hmm if I'm being more accepting of myself, I'm more accepting of my writing. They really go hand in hand. Like if you get to describe what kind of writer they are, how they feel about themselves as a writer and how they feel about themselves as a person, it feels like most all of the time, it's the same. So as I learn to love myself, learn to be more accepting of myself, I'm less judgmental and harsh about my writing and vice versa. They're really connected.
0: Yeah, I love that concept. I also, it makes me think about how, you know, a piece of writing is never finished, really. Even when it's published, there's a new edition that could come out. There's things that you Mm -hmm. see with it that could be perfected or changed or updated or polished. And I think it's important to be kind to ourselves and our writer selves for that reason. Like, just like the piece you're working on, you are a work in progress and... Mm -hmm and that's just life.
1: (laughs) It really is.
0: So, well, thank you so much for this time that I I know you're super busy and you always have a million things going on. And it really, it really means a lot to me that you carved this out of your schedule.
1: Well, I'm so honored and it's been so much fun talking to you, Amanda. And, um, I'm excited to read more of your writing and, and catch up on your podcast, which I think is just a brilliant idea.
0: Thank you. I'm really looking forward to your, mem- <clears throat> excuse me, to your memoir coming out in December. And is there a release date set for that?
1: Yeah, it's December 15th and all the information will be available at the life in 10 minutes.com website.
0: Okay, great. And yeah. are you planning any kind of launch party or signing or anything that are listening? There will be,
1: there will be a zoom launch party. Um, okay. Uh, oh, another thing is, if you subscribe to our uh, quarterly publication, Unzipped, mm-hmm. it will automatically come to you. Okay, so great. So Unzipped just costs $15 a quarter, and you get our book. And um, I think it's a wonderful investment in the literary community. Yes, definitely. To, to subscribe for the year, and um, or you can just pr- get one book at a time as well. And if,
0: if listeners want to do that, they can do that on the life in 10 minutes website.
1: Yes. It's all at life in 10 minutes.com.
0: Okay, yeah. great. Well, hopefully our listeners, as soon as this podcast wraps up, are going to rush over there to life in 10 minutes.com and they're going to sign up for unzipped and we're all going to eagerly await the release of your memoir in
1: December. Oh, <laughs> that's so kind. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of if she can do it, so can you. If you know an amazing woman who you think we should feature on a future episode of the podcast, I invite you to email me, your host, Amanda Creasy at if she can do it, so can you at gmail.com. I also invite you to check out our website, if she can do it, so can you. and pay us a visit at Instagram. If she can do it, so can you. Big thanks goes out to Brad Vire of Radfire Productions for editing this podcast. The podcast would absolutely not be possible without his editing expertise. I also would like to thank Ashley Unger who does all of the artwork for this podcast. Thank you so much to both of you. For everyone else, again, please stop by our Instagram account, If She Can Do It, So Can You, where you can find awesome information about the guests and the people behind the scenes at the podcast, as well as some little inspirational quotes and motivations and other really great content. I would also love to see you at our website, If She Can Do It, So Can You, Until next time, this is your host, Amanda Creasy, signing off. I will see you on the first of next month. I leave you with this thought. If she can do it, so can you.